From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Last year, I, I did start watching it a little bit and I was like, I could do that. That's easy. <laughs> That's where it I starts. I could do that. That's what I said. They can actually stay um, active on hard surfaces like remote controls or sideboards or mirrors or the bathroom tap or whatever for days. It's entertaining and you can jump in and out of it, but it wouldn't... It's okay. It's good. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's very good. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the Irish yoga instructor on The Apprentice. Checking into a hotel, but did you bring your UV stain kit? And Oliver Callan's first visiting critic. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that needs wipes. Lots of wipes. Stat! Let's start Playback Daily today, not with the monologue from this morning's Oliver Callan, because our host seems not to favour the 25-minute stream of consciousness that the other guy used to start his show with. Instead, let's jump straight to the first guest of the morning, Maura Rath, contestant on the new season of The Apprentice on the BBC. You're an Irish yoga teacher. You run your own yoga business. Yeah, Yoga with Maura. Uh, I run it here uh, around Ireland. I have an online studio. I host retreats. I have podcasts and I'm all over the place. You exude happiness. Why on earth would you go into this uh, very stressful show full of people backstabbing and attacking and <laughs> sneering at each other. This is what I'm asking myself. This is what I'm asking myself doing those cheesecakes. I know... Uh, that was the challenge last night, the cheesecake. We'll come to that. The absolute challenge. And you know what? I'm someone that I like to do the most random things, Oliver. I like to throw myself in the deep end. For a yoga teacher, I definitely come from a family that are go-getters. Um, and oh. people don't probably don't understand the business side of yoga. Um, anyway, I got this idea that I wanted to get investment. And all of a sudden, I started seeing apprentice ads. So I applied, didn't tell a soul, not even my husband. Really? And um, then a month later, one night in bed, I was like, um, I'm going to be on The Apprentice. And he was like, what? This is before I even done the interviews. I just got a feeling. Did you? Okay. Yeah, you're, so I was mad. <laughs> you're just one of those people who kind of go, this is a decision I've made. Bit this of a manifester, bit of a manifester, oh, and yeah. I get the feels, and I got the feels I was going to be would go with yoga. I could see that. That goes yeah. hand in hand with yoga. <laughs> uh, but you're, the yoga business was successful anyway. It is, so yeah. That's what I'm kind yeah. of wondering. That's obviously boost profile and all of that sort of thing. Is that? Yeah, no, it's been great. It's been, you know, a dream come true being able to become like a household name in Ireland with my online studio. But I have big plans. I want to take yoga more outside of Ireland um, okay. and into the UK. So I said, this is a little opportunity that could help with that. So that's why I applied and put myself through this mental time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you want to take it outside Ireland. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. So the goal is the investment, uh, break it into the UK, maybe be the Joe Wicks of yoga, uh, be, be a household That's a good name. way of selling it. Yeah, and uh, get around. I am around the world, but usually just it's a couple of Irish people that tune in. So so, so explain that to your people tuning in because this is something you do every morning. Yes. This so is I part have, of the business. Yeah, I have a 7am club, yeah. uh, an online yoga studio at Yoga Moradai. And you basically can do yoga with me every day. I'm on live every day. So you feel really part of a community and my whole ethos is making yoga simple 30 minutes to feel good good old stretch and to feel yourself uh, it's 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 probably the only thing that has survived from the lockdown isn't it? yeah <laughs> the online yoga that's it is it because it's you think it's simple it's because people feel good in their body and okay. i feel like for me it's like your toolkit to help you feel reset so in the apprentice 
<laughs> this was taken from me. So I probably realised how even how more powerful it was coming back out of it yeah. um, and missing it. <laughs> missing the yoga. You're missing the because yoga. Because you couldn't do any of it while you were. Yeah. So we were, we were woken up at 4am. That's real. Real woken up at 4am. And, and they're all living together. I'd forgotten. Yeah. Uh, I'd yeah. forgotten a lot of it. Have you been following The Apprentice, the show over the last couple of years? No, Oliver, I haven't. <laughs> Very honest. <laughs> so, uh, uh, to be honest, like I knew what the show was, you know, I, I, now and again, I dabble in watching a, an episode here and there. And then last year I, I did start watching it a little bit and I was like, I could do that. That's easy. <laughs> That's where it I starts. I could do that. That's what I said. Just want to remind people, this was this will bring everyone right back to if they haven't watched it in recent times, they might have seen it last night because the figures are huge on this show still. You're fired. You're fired. It's What a bloody mess. You're fired. <laughs> it sounds almost old school. Yeah. You know, that it's like, I can't believe this thing is still going. I forgot how good this show is. The the challenges, the stress of the whole thing. Oh, stop. There was smoke coming out my ears. Honestly, those cheesecakes last night. <laughs> yeah. But the whole thing is shot and done. Yeah. How yeah. long are you all living together? You're going to have to wait and watch because if I tell you that, I'm going to tell you okay, too much well, secrets. Maybe the length of the entire production, if the, uh, the person who's won. How long are they? Twelve on? weeks. Oh yeah. right, okay. Yeah. So yeah. if because you're gearing up to win, you yeah, can't yeah. tell us. It's in real goes. time. It's basically each task is roughly a week. So um, it's so bananas. every day you're woken up at four a.m. You said four a.m. And I thought that was just a thing for TV, but no, they wake up at four a.m. If really you've seen happens. the sleepy heads and us being woke up uh, <laughs> yesterday morning, and four a.m. rush out twenty minutes to get ready, yeah. which is mad, and um, then straight into your challenge. You put into those blacked out buses, off you go. Alan Sugar tells you what you're doing for the day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, the cheesecake. So, so tell us the cheesecake idea Yes, last so, night. So basically, uh, team girls. So it's girls versus boys. Um, mm. And the challenge was basically a profit task. OK, so we had to make a load of mini cheesecakes. We had to sell them uh, to real people um, in a market. And the goal was just to win the boys. Yeah, and, and you're making the cheesecakes and everything. We had to make the cheesecakes from scratch, um, which was... To be honest, I actually can make cheesecakes and I slightly mentioned that just, <laughs> but I also didn't want to be the person that was like, I'm not going for project manager in this one. The project I, manager who also has to suggest who should be fired yeah. at the end. Uh, this is a clip of you last night uh, telling everyone you didn't want to be project manager. <laughs> I feared for you at this point. I know. So is there anybody who would like to put themselves forward for project manager? I'm happy to manage the kitchen side of things, but... I'm okay not being a project manager, but I, if, if no one else is stepping up, I'm happy to manage or be in the kitchen for this because I have made cheesecakes. Oh, there's kind of micro panicking. I was like, oh, what have I said? Why have I, why have I told them I can make cheesecakes? There's a big difference in making cheesecakes for like 250 cheesecakes yeah. to one for your family. Um, but I, no one was saying anything about the kitchen. And after last, the week before, I don't know if you've seen the week before when the girls swi switched the yeah. breadcrumbs on the fish cakes <laughs> and the crumble, I was like, listen, I need to get in there. But that's what happens. Your kind of brain goes to mush. Absolute mush. Uh, in in um, the panic of it. Yeah, but it didn't People, go to mush yesterday for me now. I was just in a you, on a mission. You were really good. I mean, I like because you're always worried for the Irish person because we feel like we know their whole background and everything and you're being pushed into the big bad world of the English. And like... I'm of an age where I know loads of people who went to England to try and make it there and they always feel like the English don't really let you in. Yeah, yeah. Did you have that kind of experience <laughs> with your fellow Miss, English contestants? Do you know what? I was, I have to say now. Fellow I, contestants who happen to be English. Sorry, yeah. myself. <laughs> I have to say, like, I definitely was, 
I was the, obviously the only Irish person and you would miss one other Paddy Bear with you. You know yourself where we would just look at each other and smirk yes, you and laugh the look. And, and like we'd have the crack over things that maybe English people might not have as quick. Sorry to all the English people that are listening and watching. Um, but I definitely did miss the Irish banter. But you know what? They're a great bunch and um, it's been a wild ride. But there's been many times while I was there, even during that Cheesecake Factory, I was like, I've left my calm life. I have a really calm life teaching yoga, doing what I do. I know. Is this worth it? What am I doing? Um, so that's definitely been going through my mind. <laughs> Is that okay now? In your yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well done, by the way, on not being a dose. In the yeah. show. Oh, thanks. <laughs> because it is, it kind of sets you up to to be a dose in yeah, a way, doesn't it? Because you're kind of mean. I just feel, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know if it's another Irish thing. Like, we don't like tooting our own horn. Like, they were, you know, like, <laughs> like we work hard, put our head down, and we're like, ah, we're grand. You know, when you're successful at something, you're like, ah, geez, stop. It's grand. It's yeah. grand. Yoga instructor Maura Rath, contestant on the current season of The Apprentice on the BBC, talking to Oliver this morning. In 2023, more than 8,000 babies were born in the Rotunda Hospital. The master of the Rotunda, Professor Sean Daly, joined Claire Byrne in studio this morning to discuss whether or not the hospital has sufficient staff to cope with that sort of ongoing demand. So historically, the three Dublin maternity hospitals all had in or around the same number of deliveries and the same number of staff. And I think at the moment we still have the same number of staff, but we would have 17 percent more deliveries than the Coombe and 18 percent more deliveries than Hollis Street. And while I'm not for a moment saying that they need more staff, I think we need more staff. Um, I think when you look at our kind of historic um, uh, birth rates, there was a bump because of COVID. So 2021 or 2022 was the busiest year I think the Rotunda ever had, except perhaps for one year. Um, Across Ireland, that has resulted now in birth rates dropping. But the Rotunda is up 2% um, and our Mm -hmm. registrations suggest we'll be up again this year. Okay, so so is there a rule in place that your staff levels and the other maternity hospitals in Dublin, that they all have to be at the same level? No, but I think historically, because we were all at the same level, um, we all kind of needed a certain number of staff. And Mm -hmm. the difficulty and the challenge is how many midwives per delivery or how many deliveries per midwife should you have? And that's actually very difficult to calculate in Ireland because our maternity services are very different to, for example, the UK. But what we see in the north side of Dublin is the acuity, the the um, challenges that we face with our patient population are at a different level than what is faced in the other maternity hospitals. Well, explain that to me. Why is that the case? What's so happening? I think that... Um, We would have much more socially disadvantaged communities in North Dublin. We would have people who wouldn't attend necessarily as often as we would like. We would have a younger group of of women becoming pregnant. And all of those things add to the complexity. Mm -hmm. You know, I think having moved from the Coombe to the Rotunda, now my fourth year, um, I noticed a huge difference. I, I thought that, you know, the Coombe and the Rotunda dealt with a, a similar, um, I suppose, degree of social deprivation, but it's not the case. The, the, the Rotunda have far more socially challenged families 
than than would be seen in the coup. I saw in a previous interview you did, you mentioned the new Irish and in particular people coming from the Roma community. Yes. And it's difficult to engage with them throughout their pregnancies. Is, Is that the case? Yeah, like I think pregnancy is an opportunity, to be honest, you know, because women have to engage with maternity and medical and midwifery services when they're pregnant. And I think that's an opportunity for us to show them that this is worthwhile, that come for your cervical screening, come for your breast checks um, and and. You know, we would deliver more than 500 women from the Romanian community every year, you know. So we have a huge kind of responsibility there, but also a huge opportunity. And we have an inclusion midwife, an inclusion social worker in the Rotunda now to help us deal with that challenge. Mm -hmm. But that is a challenge, getting people to engage. And I'm just using that community as an example, because I know you highlighted it yourself in the past. But that is the type of problem you're facing, is it? Yes. So coming back then to staffing levels, Is it difficult to attract staff at the moment, given your location and given the housing crisis? Yeah, like I think everybody, every uh, hospital in Dublin is having challenges um, kind of recruiting staff. We are constantly trying to recruit more nurses and midwives. And you're right, I think the housing is a big issue. You know, um, we have a 1930s nurses home on our campus. Um, We have about 40 rooms there where people do sleep when they're on call, you know, but but it's not fit for purpose. It's certainly not 21st century um, accommodation. And we have engaged in fairness with the Minister for Housing and the Minister for Health, and they are both very supportive of helping us. We have, um, at the end of this month, we will have a hopefully a very detailed analysis of the possibilities for that nurse's uh, home uh, building. So you're hoping to develop it? Absolutely. And extend it? Develop and possibly extend. Now, the other, I suppose, option that is being considered is should we knock it down, you know, um, and start afresh? Um, The corridors in that building are very small. There's no lifts. There's few toilets. There's very few kitchens. So really, if we're looking to provide accommodation for staff, we will have to dramatically improve that building Mm -hmm. if it's going to be fit for purpose. Do you think there should be a Dublin waiting for medical staff? Um, Well, first of all, I don't think it would be just for medical staff. I think it would be for all healthcare workers. You know, we have trouble getting people to work in our laboratories, for example. You know, so um, I know the Dublin waiting is something that has been considered and felt not to be reasonable. Um, But there's no question it is more expensive and more difficult to live in Dublin than it is to live in other more rural parts of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And it's more difficult for you to attract staff, I would imagine, as a result of that. Haven't you people travelling from mainland Europe to work? We do, yeah. We have a number of our staff who come in for a week and stay in our nurses' accommodation and uh, fly in and fly home. Um, and uh, and they're very valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are very valuable. Can I talk to you about the Dublin riots, November 23rd? Mm-hmm. Of course, you're right in the, the centre of that, first when the stabbings happened late in the afternoon and then on when, when the riots happened and some of your staff helped out and some of them I know felt very nervous in the days afterwards coming and going from work. Has there been a lasting impact of, of that night? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think... Um, there is ongoing problems that our staff, particularly uh, the staff that um, operate in our security service, they frequently get abuse, you know. Um, Racist abuse. Yeah, 
you know, and I, I, I don't know how to challenge that, you know. Um, I think a lot of our staff are from overseas. I think, um, you know, this year we decided to bring back our kind of long service awards from 25 years to 20 years. And we had a wonderful um, lunch event in the Rotunda where we celebrated people who had worked in the Rotunda for 20 years. And, and many, many of those staff were from overseas and it was great, you know, um, and, uh, and they are very, very valuable individuals. But you're right, in the days and perhaps a little longer than that afterwards, they were anxious about coming into town, anxious getting public transport. Um, some of them live locally, worried about walking to and from the rotunda. Um, and that's just utterly unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You had to organise for some people to be escorted to work around that time, didn't you? Well, we had to send out taxis for people, yeah, you know. Um, and, uh, and you know, I think that that was, I think, an appropriate response. We ended up getting more security in and around the hospital for about a week afterwards. But thankfully, nothing escalated from there. Mm-hmm. Professor Sean Daly, Master of the Rotunda Maternity Hospital, lamenting the fact that his foreign-born staff are nervous, with good reason, about working in the city centre. On Today with Claire Byrne this morning. On this afternoon's Live Line, Monica spoke to Joe Duffy about her dog, Belle, who has some serious medical issues. Um, what's, what, what situation do you now find yourself in with Belle, Monica? Uh, Joe, I wrote an email originally um, into you after I had seen the news report on Monday night about the Dogs Trust yeah. saying they had had 400 requests in, inside of a month for surrenders. Yeah. Our dog was injured um, just under just under two weeks ago um, in an accident. Um, she was clipped or hit by a, oh, okay. a mountain bike. Um, so we thought... Um, I suppose that attention for her got her in. Um, she was given painkillers. We were told what it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really only an x-ray would confirm it. Okay. So we got some funds together anyway. We got the x-ray and we got a blood test done for her. And um, the cost of that alone, I, d- I don't need to tell you, you know, um, veterinary care is very expensive. Um but look at so no, she, no, no, she, tell me, tell me, you do need to tell me the cost of it. Yeah, the rec, the X-ray and bloods cost four hundred and twenty-five euro. That's correct. Yeah. Now we've wow. more to add to that since then. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Now, can I just say that, um, Joe, the vets do their best. You know, and no, they I know, are very all. we we, we yeah, understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But look at, and we would we would have a reasonably priced vet who, mm-hmm. you know, I I think it can go higher than that even in in city areas. But anyway, um, so. After the the X-ray, mm-hmm. there was no break, but there is like a dislocation, a dis a okay. dissociation of her hip. So we were told she can be managed medically, um, medication, wait and see, um, or if it gets worse, obviously we would be looking into a surgery or having to not allow her to suffer any longer. So for to, to put uh, her to over, put her to sleep. What age is Belle? Exactly, she's eight. She came so to us. Still a um, young dog, yeah. That's right, yeah. So she came to us. Um, she was my mother's dog. My mother had no insurance for her, and she came to us after my mother passed away. So she's been a great source of comfort to us. But what I will say, Joe, is um, she, since I suppose for about a week, 
we were giving her the medications, the anti-inflammatories, painkillers, and she started to not tolerate them. So she's bringing them up now. She's not able to keep them down. So I went back. She had an anti-sickness injection. That was more money. Um, this week, we've been bobbing in and out. They've been doing what they can for her. But it's looking very serious. So I began to make phone calls to see, you know, what do you do yeah. with a dog who lo- is looking at a surgery of over over a thousand euro? I, I wouldn't even wow. like to think about the amount. Um, and, you know, friends or people I've spoken to said, oh, a vet will do a payment plan. But Joe, what if you can't get into a payment plan, you know? Mm-hmm. So I understand what's, what's why our, there are, what, what does a payment plan mean? Well, they would allow you to spread the cost over... But you still have to um, pay the thousand euro. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I understand why people are surrendering dogs, because let alone trying to keep them normally, you know, what happens if your animal mm. needs more care than you can provide? It's heartbreaking, I can imagine... A lot of animals are handed in because people's circumstances just can't meet. Yeah. You know? So what what are the options open to you now? Well, we're in the vet again this afternoon at half three. Um she was up in the night yelping and where is where crying. is Belle now? Um she's here with me by my side. Joe, I have to take her to work with me and everything. Um Okay, I understand. I, I have her cage and I've had warm water bottles in and around her and I have to lift her out when she's going to the out to the loo. And is it evident that she's in a lot of pain? Oh, she's in pain. She's panting. She had to have another anti-sickness injection yesterday evening and she sniffed at my chicken then. I gave her the chicken last night and she managed to keep down her pain meds. But just a lot of panting, like she's panting and she's not settling. She can't sit. And when she, we have to nearly restrict her to her cage because she'll just stand in the middle of the kitchen swaying in the wind. And is she sleeping? Um... She is sleeping, like she's sleeping, but then she's waking up and she's crying. She's just looking at you crying okay. all the time. And it's do you think, I know hard. you've been given, a, you've already spent 425, um, I presume that came as a shock. And you, yeah. are, you, you, you don't have a contingency fund or a jam jar with uh, hundreds of euro in it. Um, and you, you, No, Joe, it, I have two girls and we're, we have a house move. We're coming up now at the end of March and um, mm-hmm. we're renting. So we've been in the same place three and a half years. So we're looking at a move. Yeah. And you say that, of, is it the minimum that it will cost for Bell's uh, operation? Is it, is it a minimum of €1,000? Is there a possibility that it could be more? Oh, it could be, definitely. Now, she is okay. a small dog and she's quite healthy. Um, so that will be going for her. But they don't know until they get in there what they're looking at or what they're going to be dealing with, you know. Oh, poor Bell. That's Monica, Bell's owner, talking to Joe Duffy about her unfortunate dog on this afternoon's Live Line. Over on Oliver Callan, there's a new recurring slot, which sounds a bit like Celebrity Gogglebox, if such a thing exists. If it was on the radio and you spoke to the viewers after the fact, or looked at another way, it's reviews of stuff by people who don't usually review stuff, because who needs experts, right? The inaugural visiting critic appeared this morning and was none other than comedian Bernard O'Shea. I'll start with Amazon Prime, right? So this is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So it's Donald Glover and um, it's Maya Erskine. These two very well-known US uh, actors. Donald Glover would have been known from... I would have known him from Community and his series Atlanta. Yeah, I love Community. Um, 
Uh, mine Erskine was from a show called Pen Fifteen. So if you can, it's no clue. It, right. It was on Hulu, a streaming platform called Hulu. Don't have it here. I do remember it because I remember in the very early days, Bridget and Eamon got sold to Hulu. So oh, it was yeah. one of the, it was one of the kind of competitive streaming platforms in the US. You and Apprentice star Jennifer Zamparelli. It's all connected. It's by all accident. connected. It's like this. We are right now in a Prime <laughs> series talking about. <laughs> but the and I remember seeing it and uh, but I only saw the trailers. But it was a very clever concept. So Pen One Five is slang for a male appendage. It's so, but it will, what ah, you'd yes, write yeah, it's yeah. the way you'd write it down as a 15 year, or 13 year old kid the back of so, the bus, but yeah. she was in her late 20s and they went they played herself another actress played themselves as 13 year olds in middle school in, in the state it's, I, I've only seen bits and pieces of it but, but it's one of those ones that I can't get my actual hands on to watch but it looks it looks very good but anyway so did you watch Mr and Mrs Smith I did you? yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for your great energy Oliver no I did look yeah. as simple as this it, it's based off the film but that's about where it stops it just takes its tone from the film of Mr and Mrs Smith okay. with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie that's about it terrible right? film by the way wasn't yeah, it yeah it was terrible yeah I mean, like, why would they, you're even wondering how the hell this well it's it sex sells that's what that film was suppose, you know yeah. so but, but and this guns is, and guns but this is completely different right so they're, they're, they're thrown together as these kind of outliers of society that are very intelligent obviously put in this beautiful brown stone in Manhattan Manhattan, given all the accoutrements of what you would dream to be a 30-something's life in in New York City, but they're spies working for this overhanded agency that we're not quite sure who it is, right? They call them Hi Hi or It Hi Hi because that's how the, the, the first thing they communicate with. When they go into their flat, you see they have guns, they have Land Rovers, very high-end production, very, 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 how do you say luxurious production okay, right they spent a fortune they spent a fortune on it but so does every other streaming platform yeah. spend a fortune on things the chemistry between the two of them is excellent so basically it's it is a romance between the two of them but a very defunct kind of almost bizarre one because they're out <laughs> killing people and they're sticking truth serum into people they're they're then there might is be an a episode comedy or is it well it's a comedy. It's also a kind of a relationship drama. It's also kind of, I suppose, I t- thought at times it's kind of taken the piss out of American corporate culture and slack messaging and how everybody's communicating yeah. one way but doing other things, uh, trying to get out of companies, trying to get into companies. It's it, it, There's there a little goes. bit of that in it. Yeah. But fundamentally, for me... I watched it. It's great entertainment, right? Full stop. But oh, they're right. singular episodes. Okay, episodic they call it. Yeah, yeah. They're not. So it's the not story a, is yeah, It's not an overriding arc, right? Okay. Like Sharon Horgan is is in one of them, right? Oh, right. As a billionaire, uh, uh, as a billionaire with her husband in a ski resort in Italy, I can see and the that. two of them are their, their their mission is sorry, I should say they get a mission every. Their mission is just to intercept a phone call at five p.m. Right? Maybe we should have got a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, so every episode is a, a particular mission and that's yeah. the story yes okay, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, but look it, it reminds me of the Avengers a lot of sighing you don't you're not a, no, no, look, no, no look it is excellent it is brilliant and you would enjoy it sitting down watching it yeah. but it, I, I think it's weakened by the fact that it is episodic I think if it was an overall because you, yeah. you, you meet these characters in each episode and think no I need to know more about them characters yeah, so you want right? to see Sharon Horgan again yeah or, I want yeah. to see why did they have to intercept the call why did her husband I don't want to give away anything see if you give away any. but uh, now maybe it could be completely wrong in the, the next series all these characters are joined together or something but it reminded me of the Avengers like where you have 
this very kind of noir style relationship, male female, but you also have these kind of in the shadows characters that come in every week. Okay. And you know, that's what it looked felt like to me. You know. It is shot brilliantly. It's very like Bond at times because it's a lot in Italy and it's a, that reference comes up a lot in the reviews. But it, it's entertaining and you can jump in and out of it, but it wouldn't... It's okay. It's good. It's good. <laughs> God, it's good. It's very good. Yeah. You're giving it a kind of decent enough review. Yeah. But, but it's funny if it's streaming because you do expect kind of cliffhangers to make you keep watching. Whereas instead you could just the relationship is the hook that keeps you watching. It keeps you going. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are you eating, by the way, watching these things? How, how do you? What's your kind of zone when you're watching the shows? Um, normally, I would eat um, all around me, uh, but <laughs> now um, for the last kind of six weeks, obviously, I'm on a bit of a diet, stroke, health buzz, stroke, obviously. not trying to eat okay. anything. Yeah, I've lost. Oh, yeah, look, I'm fading away. Oh, I thought you meant like yeah, some other reason. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I've done the six-week thing. I thought, oh God, I've missed this. I've missed some kind of terrible news. Well, story no, since Brian. Christmas, since Christmas. Ah, I'm, very I'm, good. Yeah, six but, weeks into it. Yeah, but I used to be a terrible man for putting on a series and just going, okay, do you know, I'll just, I'll be good. I'll have a bag of popcorn. Yeah. Versus then, two hours later, I have a briquette with Nutella on it. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, this has gone pear-shaped, but um, but it is a very bingeable series I will say that to you uh, and, and it's also it's a series that if you're on an airplane or something you go do you know what I don't need to be fully invested in this <laughs> yeah yeah. it started out as a good review now it's going to be like oh, this, would be, this would be decent <laughs> in an airplane maybe they'll uh, take me out after that, this that, that uh, kind of seemed to be almost in your comfort zone since you did after all write a book uh, my wife is married to a feckin Egypt yes yeah to- is that what it was? Yes. It was, yes. Mr. and Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Yeah, yeah. If if I if one of them was completely incompetent, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah only one of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this surely out of your comfort zone. All female indie band, all in their twenties. It's their debut album, and they're called The Last Dinner Party. Uh, tell us how cool The Last Dinner Party. Well, you see, Oliver. I specifically decided not to look at them, not to read any music press about this band called The Last Dinner Party. Very good approach. Right. And you might say, that's laziness, Bernard. And I would say, (laughs) maybe you're right, but 50% of you could be wrong. No, I genuinely decided not to because the second I Googled them, there's this massive argument online. Were they an industry plant? Were they... um, um, Nepo babies which I actually right. had to Google to search what does that mean Nepo baby Nepo baby is it Nepo nepotism, yeah, nepotism. yeah yeah yep. so I, I was going what the hell is this they're not an industry plant they're a genuine <laughs> band that met in university but there was a lot of press about them like a huge yeah. they've gone skyrocketed very quickly they're it's this band and particularly this album it reminds me of if Sparks and Joni Mitchell and Boudica had a child it would be this band and this album They'll be putting that quote on all the marketing material. That's comedian Bernard O'Shea, the Oliver Callan visiting critic, giving his unprofessional opinions on Prime Video's Mr. and Mrs. Smith series and English indie band The Last Dinner Party's debut album this morning. Here's a question for you. Do you bring a UV light with you to check for stains when you first go into your hotel room? That's what the cool kids on social media are doing, and it's making us uncool kids feel a little, well, nervous. This morning, Claire Byrne spoke to Dr Primrose Freestone, Senior Lecturer in Clinical Microbiology at the University of Leicester, and also to travel writer Ed Finn about hotel hygiene etiquette. Dr Freestone, I'll start with you. Do you think it's necessary to clean things if you walk into a hotel room and the room appears to be very thoroughly cleaned? 
but that's just it. Um, it appears to be clean, but where you can actually pick up infections and get ill are from things that you can't see, microscopic um, microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and so on. And wherever there have been people, they would deposit those bacteria, viruses, fungi, whatever, um, into the hotel room before them. And the problem is, particularly some viruses like rotavirus, enteric virus, even COVID-19, they can actually stay um, active on hard surfaces like remote controls or sideboards or mirrors or the bathroom tap or whatever for days. And it may only be a few hours between them visitors. So um, to be honest, um, that's exactly what I do when I go and stay in a hotel room. Yeah, I do give it a clean down. So anything that's there are just my bacteria and therefore relatively safe. OK. So, yeah, I think will it's you, a good idea. Let's go through your routine then. You walk into the hotel room. What's the first thing you do? Have a look around the room and, <laughs> well, I must admit, get out the cleaning kit um, from the, um, the hand luggage. Um, start on the um, um, door handles because then the light switches, because those are the first things that you touch. Okay. Occasionally washing my hands as I'm actually doing this because what I'm picking up is obviously going to be dirty. Well, microbiologically suspect um, to start with. And then having a look in the bin. And also, I must admit, uh, with recent reports from France and indeed the rest of, the, of Europe, signs of things like bed bugs. Um, so once I've actually done that in the bathroom, check on what the um, sort of bathroom looks like in terms of cleanliness. Does it smell fine? Can you see any stains anywhere? And then, well, I must admit, I get out an antibacterial spray and just give everything a spray. And that usually um, takes care of most things. The one thing is you can't sanitise adequately. The non-hard surfaces like pi- um, pillows, sheets and... and um, and um, and so on, and pillowcases. So I must admit, um, if I'm only staying one night in a hotel, I tend just to sleep on top of it and, and take a little um, blanket with me. OK, this is not a break or a holiday, right? This is work. OK, you're, if it's you're, a holiday... No, though, no, but you are going into that room and you are working before you rest. <laughs> <laughs> but then the thing is, though, what you don't want to do is pick up an infection, which you can do from a hotel room, full stop. We know that it's possible. Ed is with us as well. Ed Finn and Ed, you travel around the world as part of your job and I'm sure you've seen the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to, to hotel rooms. Take us through yes, your experiences. Yes. God, that's, this is sounding like Howard Hughes. He used to, remember Howard Hughes he used to lie naked and dark in hotel rooms because he was terrified of getting germs. Yeah, I have... Claire, I have travelled all over, yeah, and I mean, I'm probably every month two, in two hotels, and I have to say, I have, I'm still standing. I haven't been knocked over yet with any sort of disease. And yeah, for me, I mean, I think this is funny because we're all very strong now, and I am as well about sustainable tourism, you know, and a lot of hotels now will offer you like on-demand cleaning or maybe every second day, you know. But when you arrive into a hotel, the last thing I suppose I would be worried about uh, would be, um, you know, uh, cleaning the room because I would, I, would, I would have to say, in my experience, I've had a few bad things over the years. Years ago, I remember finding a dead mouse under a bed. Oh, no. Um, you know, in, in a sort of a B&B. Do you remember the old B&Bs yeah. as they were then? And, um, and I kind of remember one time going into a room and they, I, when I was in, I arrived in and the, I heard the toilet flush and there was a, a man inside in the loo. But that was uh, another experience uh, entirely. He was just in the wrong room, you know. But, uh, so I definitely gave it the, the, the place a wipe down after that. But, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's a little, it, it is, 
interesting. But I must say, in my experience, Claire, that I have had very good cleanliness and uh, over the years. And I think hotels, especially hotels now that are subscribing to these regenerative practices to get zero carbon, they might be slightly worried about people double cleaning the rooms, you know, because um, mm. you know, the whole idea with sustainability really, I suppose, is to, you know, once, once the room is cleaned and done properly, after that, I think then I would be very relaxed. I would be more inclined to have the gin and tonic when I arrive in the room, Claire, good, rather than like good wiping for you, it all but, down. But do you, do you use the glass for your gin and tonic that was in the room when you arrived? Because I, I mean, I'm not maybe as fastidious yeah. as Primrose is, but I'm not using that glass either in the bathroom or if they have one out on the, the table because you just know yeah, that hasn't yeah. been cleaned properly. Yeah, you can. I mean, I found, you know, sometimes in the cups, I've, you know, there's be tea bags left and stuff. But definitely, yeah, I would put hot water. Like if I was having a cup of coffee, I would, you know, put boil, throw some boiling water into the cup beforehand. Definitely. And I think around COVID, you, we became very conscious about like wipes and bringing wipes. Definitely, you would do that. It's been more in self-catering uh, situations, Claire, that I've had this. I mean, you know, like if you book a self-catering apartment in Spain or somewhere else, they may not be so clean. Pop to the supermarket then buy a few things. Maybe that would have happened before, but not so much for me in hotel rooms. But self-catering, I would have had it. I would be mm. more fastidious, definitely. Primrose, when I was looking into this, I found uh, an article and some videos, which I regretted looking at, of people boiling their underwear and their socks in the kettle to clean them. <laughs> <laughs> it's the drying them, Claire. Where do you dry them? <laughs> but can you imagine? I mean, does that happen? And if it does, is it the worst thing? Because the water's been boiled primrose so you know can we take some comfort in the fact that anything that they've put in there the germs have been killed well um, as long as the um, kettle uh, that's been used for cleaning the laundry is actually being rinsed out afterwards since it's going to be boiled again there's no real infection risk from that I mean, I think one of the reasons why we don't sort of seem to pick up whatever, you know, infections from what's been deposited by other guests, but, you know, in the room is because we've got such a robust immune system. And I, I, I think, you know, um, I, I, it, basically you go around the world, you actually develop your immune defences. So I reckon that's one of the reasons why we don't get as sick as we could. But there may well come a time when your immune system is less competent and that's when you maybe want to think hygiene. And I'm also a microbiologist. I'm naturally careful anyway. Mm -hmm. The throw and the pillow, the cushions that maybe are left on the bed to make it look nice. Are you particularly concerned about them? I'd imagine you are because you're not even getting into the bed. So the the soft furnishings, they're gone. Yeah, well, I get them off, don't I? Okay, and also... You can't, I mean, it's likely that the sheets and the pillowcase will be changed between guests, I hope. All right. The bedspread, the curtains, all the soft furnishings won't be because it's just too expensive. And unless they're really dirty, nobody's actually going to clean them, maybe plump them up a bit, and that's pretty much it. But they can actually, you know, um, harbour bacteria and all sorts of things, quite frankly. So, in short, um, for me, okay. I actually do clean the place up even if only there a few days. If I'm staying for longer, yeah, I do bring the full cleaning, cleaning kit because this is what makes me feel comfortable. Yeah. And I imagine it will be the same for others as well. And you don't leave your luggage on the floor. Why is that? Absolutely not. OK, because even a very clean looking room that smells wonderful can actually have, um, well, Simex Lectularius, a.k.a bed bugs actually hiding 
in um, sort of crevices. They are very good at sort of getting themselves into sort of luggage, even tiny cracks. They can go for months and months and months without food. And that's why you can actually sort of um, transmit, carry and re-sort of um, inoculate um, different places around the world with these bed bugs. That's why it's such a problem in France, in fact, in the UK. And yes, I have been in a, a hotel room where I did see some um, sort of, how can I put deposits? In other words, bed bugs sort of um, droppings. Um, and I, I slept that night on the chair. Dear God, it's enough to drive you to camping, isn't it? Well, if there was camping with a residence lounge attached. That's Dr Primrose Freestone, Senior Lecturer in Clinical Microbiology at the University of Leicester, and travel writer Ed Finn, talking hotel hygiene with Claire Byrne this morning. On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, singer-songwriter Shiva stopped in for a chat and an old tune. Originally from Clare, she told Ray how she's recently moved to Kerry. Was there some sort of um, in, 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 in what's incentivization? Yes, incentivization is that the word I'm looking for? Yes. Yeah, so in 2021, uh, we were in January 2021, myself and my partner Jack were at his parents' house and we saw an ad in the paper from the task force at Ivrahak, the Ivra task force trying to get people to move to the Gaeltacht because right. it's one of the weakest Gaeltachts in, in Ireland and I'm ashamed to say I actually was pronouncing it Ivera at the time and I was corrected to say it's actually Ivra and I'd never been down and so we kind of joked about it at the time and as it happened three months later I got some Arts Council funding to work with a poet who was based down there at the time and so went down for six weeks rented a little place in Balanskelligs and completely fell in love with the place like the second the two of us myself and Jack were there we thought we have to move here right. so we spent about three years trying to do that and finally did it last July uh, so you can see the two Skellig Rocks out well not quite no, we, you can't we, where you are we can right. see Valencia Island right oh yeah from where, so, yeah. where we so are so you're close to Port McGee then exactly right yeah Yeah. right okay yeah. it is beautiful down there isn't stunning. it stunning yeah. yeah and what about the winter down there um, well we've gone through our first winter um, and we've survived it of course know? people live down yeah. there all the time what am I even yeah. asking that question for yeah. um, so you have a new EP Infinite Space Reimagined yes um, so you're performing with orchestras is it plural yes it that's is. right Right. two different orchestras yeah, two different orchestras so OT Concert Orchestra yep. and what's the other orchestra the other orchestra is Metropole Orchestra so they're a Dutch orchestra they've been running since the 40s and they've collaborated with a lot of uh, my favourite artists Ella Fitzgerald Dizzy Gillespie wow. is on there and current, currently they've um, been re- uh, recording with Jacob Collier Snarky Puppy Robbie Williams has done a record with them and so the artistic director contacted me last year and said he was a fan of the record and would I like to travel over to record with them. What a, what a lovely call to get. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've heard your music. Will you come and play with us? Yeah, yeah. So And we'll pay you. Yeah, yeah. So the, we, we, myself and my creative partner, who's my musical director, Martin Atkinson Burrell from Limerick, we flew over and oversaw the session in the oldest recording studio in the Netherlands. Right. So it was a huge honour. Wow. There's, there's a lot of that stuff going on that you don't hear about. Mm. Like we had Jack Ellen last week. And he has done uh, two songs with Trevor Horn. Oh, yeah. And he was telling us that it's some, it's some German crowd, I think, yeah. in August or whatever, and they, they record these oh, cool. albums. They're sort of high-end concept albums. Sounds, yeah. sounds great, yeah. Um, so you're going to sing two songs for us. Let's see, we, we, we'll take one before uh, four o'clock and then maybe one 
just before we leave uh, at 25 past four. Um, so whereabouts in Clare were you from? I grew up in Ennis. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Home of trad music, as we like to say. Yes. Uh, and I saw you playing one of those guitars that are made up north. That's right. Um, this is exactly it right now. The Loudon guitars. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we had the man, the, Mr. Loudon himself, and he makes, George. they make, sorry, sorry, George. George. Yes. yes. And, and he makes guitars for Ed Sheeran. That's right. Yeah. 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 And what is it about them? They're, I mean, I think they're the best guitarists. They're just amazing. They're consistent. The tone off them is fabulous. They're so easy to play. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they really went above and beyond in terms of the spec that I was after. And so it's really, I like a small guitar as a kind of, you know, somebody with small hands. I don't want to have to be like stretching <laughs> and reaching. So, yeah, they were brilliant. So this is a bespoke guitar. Yep. Right. Yep. What are you going to sing for us first? I'm going to sing Spare Rua, which is out today on the Re- Infinite Space Reimagined EP. The track is with the concert orchestra. I couldn't fit them into the studio today, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I'm going to give it to you. So this is a song called Sperua, which is, the title is, means red sky. And it's about watching the sun come up on a beautiful summer's morning in West Clare. Togo <laughs> Ik maak nog komion, is zo'n refuig geld nog niet hem en talen voor je moe voor is mij ik scherzen, wees ik zoek. Dan gaan boer hier mocht maar min me krieg het joosje. Aan dit vaarsel om de stuikje, speer om de wil, zoosje is stuikje Nek nek om oor, vaarset sal dus, skoit jy saloon. Gee wat dit om eegiet, is Jackie Sperua. Sperua. Kan het dit geblok, le van jy kan Erteha Aurora, Barack and she on air. It's calm in the low, Ilinia Agus Luther. It's better than the crowd, the nail to in on a pole. I did fastle on the stacky, spared on the wheel, pursue a she's jacking on.
That's Shiva performing her song Sperua live on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Shiva's debut album, Infinite Space, is out now. And finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, there's long been arguments and discussion about who owns the artefacts that sit in museums around the world. Here in Ireland, for example, South Africa claims that the National Museum has a 150-year-old culturally sensitive historical object that they would like returned. A new Oireachtas committee has been set up to explore this area, and today with Clare Byrne reporter Evelyn O'Rourke spoke this morning about the work that lies ahead of that committee. Let's start with kind of trying to work out like what is a historically cultural sensitive artefact and to start I went to talk to the history professor Jane Olmar from Trinity who's written extensively on these issues her latest book indeed is called Making Empire but here she explains more starting with explaining why these objects matter. Oh my goodness, it's the symbolism attached to objects. It's hugely, hugely powerful. It's really sensitive and it's a hugely complicated issue because the first thing is establishing the provenance and whether or not, you know, a person, a country, an institution has a right to have it back in the first place. So all of that, sometimes it's sending it back to what? And some of these objects are very fragile, they're very precious, require maybe special conditions if they are going to survive at all. So none of this is is straightforward. And it is a dialogue. It's a conversation. But you can't even begin the conversation until you fully understand what we're talking about. And I think in Ireland, we are coming to this conversation relatively late. You know, most of our cultural institutions, our museums, our galleries, our libraries, It's only really now that they're actually beginning to do the inventories that give them that knowledge about uh, individual items or objects or artefacts. So until that inventory is complete, and that'll take years, we aren't really in a position to do very much at all, Evelyn. But it's very important to have the conversation. And obviously, this is the beginning of a conversation. But there's no quick fixes here. It's a long game. And as an academic and historian who's dealing, you know, with the younger generations coming through, is it more alive as a topic now, do you think? Is there a growing awareness, do you think? Oh, completely, Evelyn. Where there's a growing awareness, particularly is around Black Lives Matter, statues must fall, these wider conversations to which the repatriation and the restitution of objects is very much part of that conversation. The Trinity students started to lobby for the denaming of the Barclay Library because the bishop had been a, a owner of slaves. You know, it was a two year campaign. Obviously, there was a lot of research done on the part of the college, but that decision to dename the library happened last spring. So that impetus came primarily from the students. 
That's Jane Olmeyer. Now, concerns have been raised about objects, collections here in Ireland. And as I said, this new rock, this committee has been set up to tackle the issues. Yes, indeed. Early, this is going on for a while, but early in 2022, the calls were really growing for the establishment of an advisory committee just to help guide the government on issues relating to the restitution of historically and culturally sensitive objects. So this committee, it's under the Department of Minister Catherine Martin, just beginning its work now, really. But it's going to include drafting national guidelines on the restitution of cultural heritage objects that may have been illegally or unethically elicited or traded. It has 13 members, diverse range of backgrounds and experience as you'd expect. It includes members such as Dr Philomena Mullen, who's the Professor of Black Studies at Trinity College Dublin. And the chair is Sir Donald Deeney, who's an expert in this area, is also a member of the Court of Arbitration for Art at The Hague. But one of the members also of this committee is the chair of the Heritage Council, Ms Virginia Tehan, and here she outlines the background to it all. Since then, internationally, museum professionals have looked at guidelines to support claimant communities and museum professionals to deal with these really thorny issues of ownership, of display, our own history, our heritage, our patrimony, its context, how it connects with communities and people. And sometimes that means a re-examination of the ownership history of items, how they arrived in particular institutions and how their uh, final destination sometimes needs to be addressed. And it is time for the museum community and those who govern museum practice to look at how can we develop frameworks of best practice based upon dialogue, fairness and professional standards to ensure that there are satisfactory outcomes for everybody involved in this complicated discussion. Have you any time frame at this point? I know you've just started, but you always have to ask these questions. You know, what is the goal? Or is this just going to be ongoing work from the committee? We would like to see uh, guidelines developed within the next 18 months to two years. That's a fairly tight time frame. We will report back to the Minister on how work is progressing. But the committee members are keen to get going. Oh yes, the committee has a, a plan for the next year to progress with surveying collections extant in Ireland and then to look at best practice internationally and see how they can be applied. There are legal issues as well, of course. We're very lucky in that we have a member of the High Court as well sitting on the committee. So there's a great mix on the committee, but we have a clear mandate of work. We'd like to progress with the development of the guidelines. We're not arbitrating on individual issues. That's not our role. Our role is exclusively to provide support to the government and to the minister in developing a consistent code of practice for this issue. So that's the committee. They have a lot of work to be getting on with, but here's where it gets really interesting. So tell us about the work of the writer Nandi Jola, Mm -hmm. the two princesses you met and the warrior stick that they're interested in. Yeah, Nandi Jola is a South African writer and storyteller, Claire. She came to Ireland over 20 years ago, but she's a real advocate for this work. And one example that she is highlighting is the case of Chief Warrior Makoma. Now, you'll hear it pronounced far more elegantly in a few minutes, but he fought against British rule in the 19th century in South Africa. And when curating an exhibition to mark the 150th anniversary of his death, she says that her research leads her to believe that his cane or his stick, his chief stick, is currently stored in in the National Museum of Ireland, Collins Barracks. So she invited two of his descendants, two African princesses, to Dublin recently. She's written a play about it all and they are all calling on the museum to talk to them to facilitate possibly the return home of his stick. So here Nandi Jola tells me more about her research work and then you'll hear the voices of the princesses as they talk to me in their native tongue but we include
than the translation. I discovered through research that there is a cane or a stick that belongs to Makoma and they have to understand how painful that is. It's obvious that somebody snatched the stick out of him as soon as his breath left him. And in our culture, you have to give the belongings to the family when somebody passes. So they have to understand that this is not an object. These are things with souls. I presume the family would like to return the cane home. Absolutely. I asked Minister Martin and the committee to look at it as a matter of priority. They have responded to say that they will have a, a look at it because I have you know, now brought it to their attention. And what do you think about the situation? I work with museums and my take is that we as black people are not in the story. So repatriations and restitutions are always my agenda. I think where I am now is I have made them aware because I didn't want to make it hostile, but I wanted them an education journey so by the end of it they understand exactly what this means culturally the trauma that it has caused and how healing it would be for that king to return back it shows that makoma is not dead he's alive he's in spirit what are the hopes around the king sinalo itemba lokukubana u esizisilenje nasizolibona and he's not fighting, by the way. You know, he comes in peace, and so she has hope. He's drawn us here so that we can see it, and in having seen it, he wants us to take it home. Powerful stuff. We heard there from two African princesses, descendants of Chief Wakoma, whose warrior stick is in the National Museum at Collins Barracks. From Evelyn O'Rourke's report on culturally sensitive historical objects on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget, you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. I'll be back with more catch-up crack on Monday. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>